0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences Podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky Wilson.
1: And I am Paul R. Henlicky.
0: And today on the show, episode four, we are continuing on the Gospel of Mark, because we had so much fun with it last time, we couldn't possibly get in everything we had to say in just one hour. Today, though, we have great ambitions to wrap it up and move on to a new topic next time. So we are going to pick up where we left off in the story, which was with the transfiguration. Dad, I'm going to hand it over to you.
1: Well, as you remembered dramatically last time, Jesus and Peter exchange mutual exorcisms, because Peter seems to be unwilling to listen to Jesus. It's not accidental, then, that the next episode in the Gospel of Mark is the, on reflection, somewhat baffling story of the transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him and ascends to a high mountain, and there before their eyes his form is transfigured or transformed. He becomes bright, brilliant, radiant, uh, like the uh, brightest garments bleached with the best uh, bleach available. And suddenly with him appear Moses and Elijah, emblems of the scriptural authority figures, Moses, the revealer of the law and liberator from the uh, Egyptian uh, bondage, and Elijah, the great prophet who contested for the covenant against uh, the infidelities of the kings of Israel with the worship of the Baal. And they are conversing with Jesus, and Peter pipes up something quite incompetently about building uh, little huts uh, as though this, this were to be uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles or something like that. Uh, and while this is happening, and Mark comments, they didn't know what they were saying because they were awestruck. And suddenly, just like in the baptism story, out of the sky, out of a cloud, a voice comes about. And it says in content the same thing beloved son. It identifies Jesus as the beloved son. But in the first instance, in the baptism, the voice speaks directly to Jesus in the uh, second person singular, you are my beloved son. But here the voice speaks in the third person singular, this is my beloved son. So evidently, it's not informing Jesus of his identity, but informing Peter, James, and John.
0: And especially right after they have heard the very hard news about the cross, which they did not want to listen to.
1: Precisely. And then, very emphatically, the voice says, listen to him, listen to him. Uh, So reinforcing that Jesus is the beloved son who has told them the uncanny news of his impending fate uh, in Jerusalem?
0: And I would add the significance, too, of Elijah and Moses is this is reinforcing the continuity of God's action, that what's happening here with Jesus is not a radical departure from Moses and Elijah. In fact, Jesus, just in chapter 7, had accused the Pharisees and scribes of making a radical departure from Moses and Elijah. This is asserting a continuity of action and identity between the God we have known from the Old Testament texts and the God who is acting now in Jesus, and Moses and Elijah are there to back
1: it up in a sense to verify that this uh, continuity with the revelation given of old exactly right now what's interesting here follows it's a and again i'm loosely translating from the greek text in front of me and descending from the mountain uh, he, he uh, commanded them to say nothing about what they had uh, witnessed except when the son of man should rise from the dead
0: this is the first we've heard about the rising from the dead, just like very briefly before it was the first we heard about the cross.
1: Right. I think in the cross, first cross prediction it says, and the Son of Man must rise there too. Uh, but of oh, course, yeah, you're right. It is the, yeah. The, the, yeah. the emphasis there, though, was on the suffering and death. And here Jesus says, say nothing until the Son of Man rise from the dead. And they were wondering what it is then. Mark comments, verse 10, they were wondering what it is to rise from the dead.
0: Yeah, so they clearly missed it completely the first time because they were so traumatized by this word about the cross. That part, the happy ending, so to speak, just slipped past them entirely.
1: Yeah, I think it's even deeper than that, though. I think wh- what they've missed is the significance of the scene they've just beheld. Uh, here it's important to pause for a minute and say... All the gospel literature of the New Testament, beginning with Mark, is written from the perspective of faith in the risen Jesus. That Jesus is risen from the dead is the founding word that establishes the Christian faith. As we talked about, the original gospel is that God has raised Jesus, his servant, from death and made him Lord and Christ and so forth. And this Assumption is everywhere um, made in early Christian literature. The Gospel of Mark is written from the perspective of faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, risen from the dead, and somehow through the Holy Spirit present uh, with his people. So, here's a little bit of a clue as to why there are no resurrection appearances at the end of the Gospel of Mark. It is as if the transfiguration story is there to reveal Jesus in his resurrection glory. And again, the imperceptive disciples, having just witnessed Jesus in his resurrection glory, are wondering what it is to rise from the dead.
0: So in a sense, right here at the the midpoint of the drama, if we're thinking of, of Mark as a brilliantly told story, we're getting a trial run for what's going to happen at the end. We get the news about the cross that confirms and ex- explicates Jesus identity followed by the transfiguration which is a foreshadowing of the resurrection so when the real thing happens at the end of the story you like the disciples should be prepared for what's coming you probably won't be the disciples certainly weren't but narratively that's what's happening here
1: yeah i think that's right and i think and we'll see this a little bit more thoroughly when we turn when we get to chapter 13 but here i'm going to take a moment and use a little teaching device I use with students all the time uh, to help them understand the significance of what has happened here with the heavenly voice singling out Jesus in resurrection glory and saying to Peter, James, and John through them to all the readers of Mark, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Here's my little exercise that I use. I've got good news. Someone's beaten death. Someone's risen from the dead. And this someone is on the march, and he's coming to bring his liberation to all of us. And his name is Joseph Stalin. No, no! Good news? No! Terrible news.
0: Terrible news.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I think much of the riddle of Mark's gospel is that everyone in the early Christian community presupposes belief in the resurrected Lord. The Risen One is there, and he speaks to us through by the Holy Spirit through his prophets and preachers. But Mark now has to uh, extend Paul's identification of the Risen One with Jesus who had been crucified and give the name Jesus of Nazareth greater narrative content, so it's unmistakably clear who it is that has been raised from the dead this jesus who's about to tell us at the end of chapter 10 what is the substance and purpose of his mission uh, his passage from Galilee to Jerusalem.
0: So sometimes in Christology, we distinguish between the person of Christ and the work of Christ. But what we're seeing here in Mark is that those are indistinguishable realities or questions that they have to be answered in tandem with one another, not by itself. Otherwise, as you said, we could have good news about the work of resurrection and then bad news about the person, Joseph Stalin.
1: Right, exactly. Right. Yes, the the person and the work inform each other. It's a purely heuristic distinction, which we do for the sake of getting clear about who Jesus is and clear about what Jesus does, person and work. But obviously, from the outset, as we've already said, for Mark, Jesus appears as a man on a mission. And there's a single-minded focus on the man in his course from his baptism to his death and resurrection.
0: All right, well, let's head right in that direction now and pick up again with our own uh, traversing the landscape of Mark. Forward. So, after they come down from the mountain and uh, are puzzling over the resurrection, they kind of change the subject, as people often do when they're uncomfortable, to ask about why do the scribes say Elijah must first come? You know, which makes sense. They've just seen Elijah and maybe they think that's it. But Jesus is um, clearly trying to transfer the reference to Elijah over to John the Baptist, referring back to the horrible story of his beheading a couple chapters earlier. Then when they're down back on the plain where they belong off the mountain, there's a remarkable story of a healing remarkable in several respects. Uh, For me, the most amazing thing of all, in fact, is that the first thing that happens after we have the full news of the coming cross, as well as the foreshadowing of the resurrection through Jesus' transfiguration, and the disciples are in on this too, the first thing that happens is massive failure on the part of Jesus' followers. In fact, they find a crowd gathered because the disciples have attempted to cast out this evil epileptic spirit, and they have failed. And Jesus, as we see, is very displeased and replies, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And then the boy is brought forward. There's a remarkably long dialogue between Jesus and the father about this. This boy has been suffering from childhood. It is a really terrible um, affliction he has being cast into fire and water. It's trying to destroy him. And then he concludes with this really startling statement, or Jesus takes it as startling, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus retorts, if you can, (laughs) like he seems to be a little offended there, like if (laughs) all things are possible, but then he shifts it for one who believes. So it's interesting. The man phrases the question in terms of what Jesus can do, if this is possible for him. But Jesus shifts it back and says, all things are possible for one who believes. Evidently, that's the father. And then the immediate response of the father is, I believe, help my unbelief. This is extraordinary. This could be like the subtitle or the motto of Mark's whole gospel. I believe, help my unbelief. There's an incredible duality of both of those things at the same time. And so in response to this, open acknowledgement of both belief and unbelief. Jesus immediately sends out the terrible spirit, commands him never to come again. Uh, The exit is so traumatic that the boy seems to be dead, but Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him up again. And this is just, this is just so wonderful to me (laughs) that uh, Jesus' mercy for, for unbelief in the midst of belief. It's not a, a simple either or proposition. And I think those of us who have tried to be Christians know how, how profoundly that is true. Then we have change of direction that begins here um, in the next section. So from they went on from there and passed through Galilee, which is where most of the action has been taking place in Galilee or around the margins of it. And he did not want anyone to know. And now we have the second passion prediction, pretty hot on the heels of the first one. And he says again to the disciples, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But once again, the disciples failed to take the opportunity to understand what's going on. They did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. So then we have a series of rather um, short encounters and teachings. We have the question of who is the greatest. They're very embarrassed when Jesus asks, hey, what were you talking about there? Because it seems as soon as he asks, they realize how inappropriate it was. And Jesus contrasts their power jockeying with a little child and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. We see a lot of this in the other Gospels, too, in Matthew and also in John, this kind of exchange language that to receive one person is, in fact, to receive another. John especially talks about that having the son is having the father, having the father is having the son. Um, And Jesus extends it here to another degree, that receiving the child in his name is to receive Jesus, and to receive Jesus is to receive the one who sent him. So, there is this very beautiful growing network of interrelatedness. Again, uh, not at all an individualistic view, but a a communally oriented one of connection. Uh, Following that, there is the uh, irritation by the disciples that someone else is casting out demons in Jesus' name, but not one of them. And... (laughs) Jesus tells them to chill out. If he's not against us, then he's for us. And again, if you give a cup of water, if someone else gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, they will not, lose their reward. So this exchange we saw in the previous section has been shifted back the other way to the people who are the outsiders and say, even them receiving you with a cup of water is to receive me.
1: Exchange, yeah, another word you could use is circulation, right? That the spiritual love and power that is proceeding from Jesus' ministry circulates and spirals and expands and so forth.
0: Right. And of course, that's a theme you and I both know and love from Luther. And I don't think he particularly got it from Mark, but I'm always cheered to see these kind of connections appear elsewhere in, in less obvious texts. Then we have the temptations to sin with the millstone and cutting hands off and legs and plucking out eyeballs and going to hell and the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and have salt in yourselves and be at peace. Like, Who can be at peace after just hearing that you should gouge out your own eyeball? Um, I think we'll uh, save further discussion of those kind of things for when we get to the apocalypse of chapter 13. Then, probably no mistake, following on a reference to children before, we're going to come up to another reference to children up above, but uh, in between, there is a discussion about divorce. Um, and again, this is put in the context of, uh, you know, what is lawful, what Moses allowed. And in this case, now, Jesus pushes back a little harder against Moses than he has before. He does refer the question to Moses, is it lawful to divorce? And they're right, Moses did allow for it, but Jesus points out, okay, Moses, Moses allowed it, but because of your hardness of heart. And he refers to something even older than the law, which is the original intention of creation, which is God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one what God has joined together, let no one separate. And here, Mark is very stark about the issue, you know, there's just no divorce period. Matthew will soften it up a bit and add, a, you know, some cases where maybe it's okay. But Jesus here is, is pretty hard referring back to the original intention of creation. And then immediately following on that, of course, is the bringing of the children to him. No mistake to have concern for children, follow concern over divorce. And Jesus says plainly, to them belongs the kingdom of God, and then makes them icons again. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he blessed them and laid his hands on them. Very popular topic for stained glass art. All right, now we get to a longer story again. Uh, And this is the last series we have now before Jesus comes to Jerusalem. So we have the story of the rich young man, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says something a bit tricky. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know, this could be a way of Jesus saying, hey, I'm not God, so don't call me good. It could also be saying, don't call me good unless you really know what good is. I tend to opt for the, the second option there. He goes through the commandments and and the young man replies, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. And now this is the amazing thing in this story. Jesus looking at him, loved him. This is the only time in the entire gospel of Mark that we are told that Jesus loves Anyone, it's you know a total truism of faith and piety to say Jesus loves you. Jesus loves everybody. Jesus loves the whole world. And I would say, generally speaking, that's a good thing to say. We want to hold to that. But in the story that Mark is telling here, this is the only time Jesus' love is called out and identified in this way, and is directed towards a specific person. And note well, it's someone who has kept the law. Again, in Mark, we're not seeing this quite the level of hostility between um, emerging, the emerging uh, estranged brothers of Judaism and Christianity, but it's the young man who has devoted his life to the law that wins Jesus' unique love. So Jesus then ruins it by saying, okay, you've you've done well, so just do this one last thing. Sell all that you have, give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And then this poor young man, the only one to be loved by name by Jesus, is disheartened by the saying, and goes away sorrowful, for he had great possessions." Now, this is also a bit startling, because Mark's gospel is not especially preoccupied with questions of wealth and poverty. For example, we see much, much more of that in the gospel of Luke. Here, it kind of seems to come out of nowhere. But Jesus takes the opportunity to teach on the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God when there is wealth at stake. And as the, the wonderful and famous camel through the eye of the needle image, uh, which makes the disciples so astonished, they say, then who can be saved? A very good question. And Jesus answered with uh, what is small consolation for the religiously ambitious. With man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Which means bad news for you. You actually have to depend on God. You can't do this one yourself. Peter misses the point, as usual, and says, see, we have loved everything and followed you, trying to prove that he could do what the young man that was loved by Jesus could not. I expect there's a little bit of envy going on there. And Jesus here again gives us a faint foretaste of the apocalypse coming. He says that no one who has left all these things, brother sisters, mother, father, house, children, lands, etc., for my sake and for the gospel, that person will receive a hundredfold back, but with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life and the great reversal that will happen there. Immediately afterwards, we get the third passion prediction. You see how fast and thick they're coming now. And this is the turning point towards the final bit of the action, uh, which will really start in chapter 11. But we're getting now to the end of the middle section of the story. Because now when Jesus talks about his passion, now he is on his way to Jerusalem. It says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. So this is a very clear signal that there is a shift now in direction. All this time, Jesus has not approached Jerusalem, though some people from Jerusalem have approached him. But now, with the third and final passion prediction, he is on his way there, and he informs them again, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. A little more detail this time. The detail is not happy. It's worse. The mocking, spinning, flogging, etc. Then we get to this very interesting little exchange with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They set him up. Like, if you have a kid who says, Mom, I want you to do whatever I ask of you, you will never ever say yes. But that's exactly what James and John do. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever you ask. And they asked to sit at the right and left hand in glory. They obviously did not get the message when Jesus rebuked them for talking about who was the greatest And now Jesus replies with something really bizarre in the context of this gospel. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, I think we often glide over this because baptism is so central to practice. It's so obvious Jesus got baptized early on and so forth. Like, it doesn't seem weird that he would use this language, but actually in this gospel, We have no reason to really associate baptism with Jesus, per se. I mean, he does get baptized early on, but John does it to him. And then later references to, uh, to baptism really refer again to John as John the Baptist. He is the one that it's associated with and so forth. So now for Jesus to claim baptism, not only for himself, but as something beyond this washing in the Jordan, but it obviously is alluding to his passion, something more profound is going on here. My own suspicions are uh, in part that this is a connection on some very deep, mysterious and long lost level between. Mark and Paul, in Romans six, Paul talks about the baptism of Jesus as a or being baptized as being buried with Jesus. Uh, Mark here talks about baptism kind of in the context of the whole passion. But there is this definite linking up, not just to baptism for repentance or forgiveness, but specifically linking baptism to death.
1: You know, that's that's a really profound statement because. So often people look at baptism and say, what are its benefits? What, what are the good things it does for me? And that's putting the cart before the horse then. Because here, if you're right, baptism means something more like being merged into, united with uh, the cross and resurrection of Christ. It's more like union with Christ and then the benefits of repentance faith and forgiveness etc would be flowing out of that more primary act of identification.
0: Yeah, and the union with Christ is specifically union with the crucified Christ. Right. It's not a happy post-resurrection Christ, but this the suffering Christ. I also think it's really important here to see that baptism in this way is understood as not an action but a passion. That a passion. this is not something that is chosen Um, in a heroic act of, you know, self-sacrifice, as if the baptized person, or Jesus for that matter, were the the agent pursuing this um, remarkable death. But it is something that one undergoes, endures, suffers. It really is a passion. And it shifts that, that locus away again from the frenetic activity orientation back to this passion orientation, which is, of course, where the whole story is going. Um, So then Jesus says, well, you are going to get baptized with this baptism, though it's pretty clear that they don't really know what that entails. And he reminds them again what it means to be rulers and servants and how it's going to be among them. And then he concludes with this very famous line, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom, I think in a previous episode, I said hilasterian. It's not that here. It's it's lutron. But I, I often think of it as the word that launched a thousand atonement theories. So uh-huh. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you uh, wrestle with this one a bit before we go on.
1: Well, I think here in the apocalyptic context of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is breaking into the strong man's house and binding him up in order to plunder his goods. So, the language of the word Lutron here refers to the payment made to redeem a slave. We have to remember we're living in a slave society at the time of Jesus And people frequently in bankruptcy or debt sold themselves into slavery. And there they remained until someone uh, would come and pay the lutron, the redemption fee, to release them from bondage. And somehow then, Jesus is saying, uh, I'm not coming as the kings of the Gentile in order to be uh, served and glorified and Uh, that way, but I'm rather coming as a servant to serve. And what I'm going to serve is my own life. I'm going to give my own life to make the payment of redemption uh, for the sake of many who are in bondage. So this is uh, an idea that's a little bit different from the sacrifice of atonement. It's not that somehow Jesus's death compensates for the guilty debt Uh, of those who he um, is liberating, but rather that Jesus's gift of his life uh, is a payment. Yes, it's an economic image, of course, it's a payment, but it's a redemption payment that sets those in bondage free. So as we go along, we'll have to ask how, how Mark thinks that actually works.
0: Okay, great. All right, and now that brings us to the last story before Jesus enters Jerusalem. This is blind Bartimaeus, who is sitting by the roadside. When he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he starts shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, which is a great irony in the context of the story when Jesus has been continually pleading with people to keep silence. (laughs) It fails here. Bartimaeus already knows him by reputation and begs for mercy. And uh, Jesus, of course, then heals him and heals him on the first try. Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And take note, this is the last healing of blindness in this gospel, but it's the first time we've had a healing of blindness since the passion predictions and the transfiguration. So if you remember, before Jesus reveals about the cross, he does the healing of the eyes and things are blurry like trees walking. And so in a sense, now that you have had these three passion predictions, we're on the other side of that and the transfiguration. Now, this is in a sense, your last chance to see clearly what what's happening. And Bartimaeus is sort of a figure of
1: that. Notice, too, how Bartimaeus addresses Jesus as son of David. That, that's an address that's pregnant with meaning, because Jesus is about to enter the city of David, where he's going to be greeted, as the one who is coming to fulfill the the coming kingdom of our father david
0: right and i don't think this name has been applied to jesus and certainly hasn't claimed it for himself yet so this is kind of beginning to raise the stakes as people are adding names to jesus and um the romans are going to overhear and have some opinions about that as well
1: exactly now we've just got a, a a contrast here that is increases the tension On the one hand, Jesus comes not like a typical king to be served, but to serve, and serve what? His own life as a payment of redemption for those in bondage. And that uh, statement about Jesus's mission is contrasted with the greeting of Jesus as the heir, son, and heir of David's throne.
0: Right. So the crowds are going to have a hard time merging these identities, (laughs) as uh, has been so often the case in this gospel. So now we begin the final ending payoff, the big final scene in several parts. The last time we recorded, you mentioned how Mark's gospel has been characterized as a passion narrative with a long intro. You know, I don't think that's completely wrong. I think you need the entire story up to this point for the passion narrative to be meaningful at all. Everything that has happened so far has been raising the tension like any good story does to tell you why this payoff is so meaningful and so exciting. But we are now transitioning from from that, you know, the the inciting incident and all this build up through the middle of the tensions, misunderstandings, revelations, etc. And, and now here we are. This is the beginning of the end, in a sense. So um, we have, of course, the famous uh, triumphal entry story with the cults and the people spreading out their cloaks and leafy branches and they're shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Um, it always cracks me up on Palm Sunday when we march around saying these words and waving leafy branches, because the whole point is that the crowd is the one that's going to turn on him and a few days later call for him to be crucified. But we never on Good Friday march around shouting, crucify him, crucify him, like we think that's a great idea. But there is a really profound irony here, this sense of who Jesus is, yet totally misinterpreted that the crowd that welcomes him is the crowd that's going to turn on him. And apparently there was such a thick crowd and took Jesus so long to pass through the gates that by the time he had, you know, had a look around the city, it was already late. So he's like, all right, let's go back out to Bethany for the night. So, um, the next day, though, that they return, and their return to Jerusalem is bracketed by the curious story of the fig tree. I, I once Someone once told me that uh, an, an unbelieving friend said she was not allowed to eat figs because, you know, Jesus cursed figs. said, well, I'm not sure that's what this story is really about, that figs are objectively objectionable fruits. <laughs> it is meant to be a figure of the temple not being in season for the Lord that has come to it. And so, in between of these withered fig stories. There is Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Again, this is a little bit startling. We have not seen kind of this level of action verging on violence on Jesus' part. He has had controversies with the Pharisees, but he is, you know, it's the second day in Jerusalem. As far as we know, he hasn't been there yet. And he just approaches the temple with rage and overturns tables. And the seats of those who sold pigeons would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And the then he sets himself up as teacher and says, My house is a house of prayer for all nations. That's a, an important little detail there, all nations. We're going to hear more about the nations before too much longer. And, uh, the response, uh, hardly surprising, is that the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then again, there's a lesson of the withered fig tree, and Jesus says, you know, if you can say in your heart and truly believe it to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will come to pass, which seems to be Jesus' gentle way of saying, none of you have faith in God, because all the mountains are staying firmly fixed to the earth. But he also commends, um, praying for Forgiveness, so that the Heavenly Father may also forgive you. And again, we have seen these details here and there about forgiveness of sin. Like, it's part of Jesus' initial teaching as well as John the Baptist, you know, repent and believe. And for instance, when the paralytic is healed in chapter two, he first says, Your sins are forgiven. But it hasn't been, you know, an absolutely like, In the way Luther's theology, forgiveness of sins is always the central theme you come back to again and again. And Mark, it kind of comes and goes, and suddenly we have this little eruption here again of the need for forgiveness. Then there's a little controversy in the temple. By what authority? And Jesus puts it back. I'll answer you that question if you answer this one it's about John and you know it's it's really fascinating to me because this is so inconclusive on either side Jesus doesn't answer their question but nobody answers the question about John the Baptist either he remains really this puzzling figure I hope when we get to talking about Luke and Acts we can talk more about the relationship between John and Jesus because I think there is a, a really interesting um, wrestling for the interpretation especially of John's legacy that is far below the surface here and we Christians don't really notice it much anymore. Now we get a long parable, the parable of the tenants and the vineyard and the owner sending his various servants to them. And he finally decides to send his beloved son. Hint, hint. Do you get what this is about? Um, And he says, they will respect my son. (laughs) But that's exactly not what happens. Instead, they say, this is the heir. Let's kill him and we'll get it. And instead, the owner finally shows up, throws out those and destroys those tenants and gives the vineyard to others. When he concludes with the verse, the stone that the builders rejected has been the cornerstone. It seems to me that this must be a very strong allusion to, again, to the um, mission to the Gentiles that we're going to hear more about later, that the idea is the, the servants who were sent were all the prophets and the tenants were the, the people of Israel. Perhaps he means more specifically the religious establishment. of Jerusalem. Jesus, of course, is the beloved son, but then the people who end up getting the inheritance are the people entirely outside the system. This is disturbing. (laughs) Also, for those if we're trying to craft a a non-supersessionistic reading of um, Christianity, this causes some problems, but it certainly does speak at least to the immediate context of the tension that Jesus coming as the uh, the promised beloved son and not being received by the the temple, by the chief priests and scribes and so forth. Certainly there are many other in the community of Israel right now who are very willingly receiving Jesus.
1: Well, you know, there's here's the thing, that what the narrative makes clear is that Jesus's business is with the temple. It's not like Jesus enters Jerusalem and goes to the palace of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and says, get out of here. Instead, he goes to the temple, and he cleanses the temple, and he disputes in the temple with the Sadducees, who were the party in Jerusalem that controlled the temple business. And it was a business. Jews in the Diaspora all over the ancient world would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem to, in order to uh, make sacrifices in the temple. They had to convert their currency to temple currency, and that was very profitable. And Jesus is looking at the whole temple establishment and saying, it's corrupt. Uh, You've inverted its meaning. Now, Jesus, the Jew, who's making this critique, is uh, not dissimilar from the community at Qumran, the Essenes, who were likewise very unhappy with the temple establishment in Jerusalem. Moreover, as we're about to discuss, within 40 years, Jerusalem lies in ruins, and the temple has been destroyed by the Roman army, and on its sacred precincts, a statue uh, to a pagan god has been erected. And in this catastrophic event, probably around the time when the Gospel of Mark was composed, the... uh, descendants of the Pharisees of Jesus' time looked at themselves and said, why has the Lord permitted this terrible judgment to fall upon us? And it's not like Christians even then were saying, yeah, 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 (laughs) God destroyed your temple. It's, it's like Jews, both Jewish Jews and Jewish Christians alike said, look at this tremendous judgment of God on the temple establishment. And the rabbis that emerged after that period then said, it's because God wants the people of Israel in the synagogues, scattered throughout the world to be a light to the nations and to take on the holy function of the temple.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because as we've seen throughout, Jesus is not attacking Israel's own tradition or the Pentateuch or Moses or Elijah. What he's really attacking is recent interpretations uh, that are, militate against what that faith of Israel was always meant to be. And now if we look ahead at the rest of chapter 12, all of these controversies are really specific to that temple establishment and their failure to understand what God is about. So we have in this paying taxes to Caesar, it's the Pharisees and the Herodians who are trying to trap him. Then we have the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, and of course Jesus says you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. But again, he's looking back towards Israel's tradition, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, all of that is strongly affirmed. And then we go to the great commandments, and here again, um, you know, the scribe asks him which is the most important, and Jesus says the Shema: Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. That is right out of Leviticus, the most reviled book of the Old Testament, which I adore and we'll talk about in a future episode. And then the second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So again, referring right back to the heart of Israel's um, faith and teaching. And then what's really surprising is this scribe actually doesn't disagree. There can be a good scribe of the Jerusalem establishment. And he replies, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Though that might, last comment might again reflect a post-temple context when there is no longer anywhere that you can actually offer burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then Jesus sees that he answers wisely. I mean, that's amazing that Jesus affirms the wisdom of a scribe and says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Again, the narrative logic of the gospel, the only step left between here and the kingdom of God is Jesus' own passion and resurrection. And then Jesus, after that, kind of mocks his acclamation as the son of David by referring to the psalm and saying, "How so how can how can uh, David himself calls him Lord? So how is he his son? Which is uh, a funny, the very words he's welcomed with are then turned on their head. And he finally offers a warning against scribes, apparently not like the one he had just approved of. Um, And again, their love of glory and honor and wealth. And the whole sort of uh, controversy with the temple establishment ends with his uh, strong words of affirmation of the widow who gave everything out of her poverty. That brings us now to uh, the opening of this longest single unit in the whole gospel. This is the Apocalypse. And it seems to be provoked by them coming out of the temple. And one of the disciples, I'm going to guess he was a real country bumpkin from Galilee, had never been in such a big city, and totally dazzled, looks like any tourist in Paris. Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus totally reigns on his parade and says, yeah, you see those buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So, you know, get your little photo opportunity of Notre Dame now, because it won't be here before too much longer. So anyway, the rest of this chapter, again, as I said, it's the longest single unit in the whole entire gospel is what's called this little apocalypse. So dad, why don't you pick up on this and comment on it for us?
1: So I'm just going to focus on several surprising things in the so-called little apocalypse of chapter 13. Peter and James and John and Andrew are gathered by Jesus on the mount of olives and having heard Jesus prophesy that the temple will be demolished the city will be laid to ruin they ask when shall these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to be all, all these things are about to be fulfilled now notice how Jesus answers he doesn't He totally ignores the when question. And he says, Watch over yourselves lest you be deceived. Watch over yourselves lest you be deceived. In other words, when people are trying to read off a timetable and say, here it is, and it's about to take place, watch that you don't be deceived. Many will come. Now, this, I think, is extremely significant for the theology of the Gospel of Mark. Many will come in my name saying that ego am me, in Greek, I am. Remember those words because Jesus is going to repeat them in his confession to the high priest, ego am me.
0: And that's also the opening part of the Tetragrammaton as well.
1: The Hebrew form of God's name, right? Uh, I am, and many will be deceived. Now notice, what Jesus here is replying this way is saying, everyone in the community believes in the risen Lord. And many prophets and preachers are claiming to speak in the name of the risen Lord. And in the climate of wars and rumors of wars, you are going to be besieged with messages of liberation, salvation, deliverance, and these deceptive voices are going to lead you astray if it's possible. But now I'm telling you all of this in advance so that you won't be deceived. Verse 9, watch therefore over yourselves, right? Uh, Once again, because you're going to get persecuted. You're going to be dragged into the synagogues and before the kings of the nations on account of me, in order that you bear witness to me. And then we mentioned this earlier, verse 10, first the gospel must be preached to all the nations. So, your eagerness to see the signs of the end times are interrupted, uh, on the one hand, by persecution, and on the other hand, by the ongoing mission to the nations. The counsel is repeated uh, again in verse 21. Uh, And then, if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ. Behold, there is the Christ. Do not believe them. There's going to arise many false Christs and false prophets, and they will give... Now notice this thinking of Jesus in the first half of the Gospel of Mark, wonder-working Jesus. And they will give signs and uh, wonders so as to deceive, if it were possible, even the elect. But you watch, behold, I've told you everything. And then the apostles, Little Apocalypse concludes in verse 24 and 25 with an utterly cosmic transformation. The coming of the end will be unmistakable because then the Son of Man will appear coming in the clouds with power and a great power and glory. And then he will send the angels and they shall gather the elect from the corners of the earth and so forth. So, The finale is unmistakable, uh, and it's as if the prelude to the finale is indefinitely extended. It's filled with persecution on the one side and mission to the nations on the other. And in the midst of all this fog and friction of apocalyptic battle, the fundamental injunction is don't be deceived recognize who Jesus is, who the risen one is uh, as Jesus, who is and remains forever the man Jesus, as he's been presented in these words of the Gospel of Mark.
0: And it's really remarkable how Jesus, in fact, relativizes everything that made him popular in the first half of the gospel, namely the signs and wonders. Because he says quite plainly, pretenders can perform signs and wonders. That itself is not sufficient criteria for identifying the Christ correctly.
1: Exactly right.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting that you say, too, about this sort of indefinite extension of the end time with the persecutions on the one side and the mission of the nations on the other. In fact, that also forecasts why this story itself will have an inconclusive ending, because in fact, the story it's telling has not yet finished. It's still going.
1: Yeah, I I think we could almost say something like this, that for Mark, the evangelist Mark, the... End times are inaugurated or initiated wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is proclaimed. And somehow, this cosmic event uh, is all in macrocosm, is happening in microcosm wherever and whenever the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gets proclaimed.
0: Okay, well, again, we're a little bit pressed for time here, and I think we will do a future episode on the crucifixion, so I'm going to go a little bit more quickly through the end here and just try to lift up what are some of the distinctive features here. So now, at the beginning of chapter 14, we have a very specific framing of the time, which hasn't really been a big deal for Mark so far. John always tells us when, what time of year, and what festivals things are happening. But for Mark, we've been kind of hazy about all this. Now we know it's two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, And now we know the chief priests and scribes are seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth. Jesus is uh, spending his nights in Bethany, he goes to the house of Simon the leper, and he is anointed with the pure nard by the woman, and people are all outraged, Um, but Jesus affirms her that she has anointed his body beforehand for burial, and then says the very Eucharistic language of, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her, for the remembrance of her. Very striking statement there. Uh, Immediately after that, Judas decides to go and betray him. And again, as we've noted before, there's so little time on the bad guys in this story. We know that Satan is the big bad guy. We know how the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees and Judas are responsible. But there's no interest, again, in their inner life, not much about their motivations. And Judas really is quite neglected here. He just goes off and betrays him. Then Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. We're told um, it's on the first day when the lamb is sacrificed that they get together. Um, Jesus warns them that he is going to be betrayed by one of them. He institutes the Lord's Supper and then says he will not again drink of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. They go out to the Mount of Olives. He warns them, you will all fall away. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter, as usual, the boaster says, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus has bad news for him. Truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So um, this is just (laughs) a tragic pattern we've seen all the way through here. And again, so extraordinary that the number one disciple is singled out primarily for his failures. Then they go away to Gethsemane to pray. Jesus is very sorrowful. He asks, he says, uh, he quotes himself, in fact, saying, all things are possible for you. Remember, even rich people can go to heaven with you. So if all things are possible for you, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And of course, the disciples keep falling asleep. Jesus keeps on praying. And finally, the betrayer is at hand.
1: You know, you could comment there Uh, The interactions between God and Jesus directly in the Gospel of Mark, we've heard God speak from heaven at the baptism and again at the transfiguration. So God takes the initiative. Jesus is the recipient of words from above. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus addresses God, Abba, Father. With you all things are possible. If it be possible, remove this cup. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. And then again, on the cross, Jesus is going to cry out, My God, my God, uh, why have you forsaken me? And so in these two episodes, the interaction is from Jesus to God, from Jesus to God. And it's quite striking, isn't it? That unlike in the baptism and the transfiguration, Jesus' prayers to God apparently are met with silence.
0: Or simply, you're on the right course and I'm not going to stop you. Yes, drink the cup, receive the baptism.
1: That's called an argument from silence.
0: Yes, not very satisfying for logicians or for people about to be crucified. So anyway, G- Jesus is arrested, as we know, everybody flees him. Um, in chapter 14, 50, 1 and 52, we have something unique to Mark, not picked up by the other synoptic brothers, which is, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left linen cloth and ran away naked. No further explanation, very bizarre little detail there. I like to think that it was the author of the gospel himself inserting himself in this embarrassing little scene here.
1: One other theory that's often uh, mentioned is that it's a symbol of baptism. Since in early Christian baptism, people were stripped of their worldly costumes and went naked uh, into the pool of water, symbolizing their union uh, with Christ in death. Ah, there you
0: go. I hadn't heard that one. Okay, then Jesus has his trial before the high priests. There's all this false testimony. They finally sort of agree that he talks about destroying the temple, which, of course, readers know has, in fact, happened, though not by Jesus' hand. Jesus is silent a long time, but finally says, affirms that he is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven, as we heard in the apocalypse of chapter 13. And they've decided that's enough. Then we have Peter's denial three times, despite his uh, boasting that he would never abandon Jesus, and he breaks down and weeps. In the morning, Jesus is handed over to Pilate. Again, unlike John's Gospel, this is a very brief interchange with Pilate. He's not really the bad guy here. He just says, are you the king of the Jews? Have you no answer to make? Pilate's amazed, he realizes that it's somehow out of envy, that Jesus has been turned over, so he tries to get Jesus released. He says, hey, you know how I let someone out of prison for you at your festival? How about Jesus? And no, they ask for a murderer instead. And he can't figure out, why? What evil has he done? Why do they want to crucify him? And in the end, Pilate, a good wishy-washy politician, decides he wants to satisfy the crowd. So he releases Barabbas, scourges Jesus, and hands him over to be crucified.
1: I think you can again see the narrative art of the the evangelist Mark in the way that Peter's denial uh, bookends uh, Jesus' confession. By his denial, Peter saves his skin avoids being uh, crucified uh, uh, with Jesus. And by his confession, uh, Jesus brings down the death sentence upon himself. And the chief priest said to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, ego emi, I am. So that's his confession. Uh, It's the first time that Jesus openly acknowledges his identity, and I think it's really important to see here, by acknowledging his identity in this circumstance, he brings down the death sentence uh, for blasphemy upon himself.
0: He could have escaped like Peter did, but he doesn't and takes the consequences. Exactly. So then the soldiers lead Jesus away, they mock him, hail king of the Jews with the purple cloak and the the crown of thorns, the reed in his hand. Um, They compel Simon of Cyrene, uh, we're told is the father of Alexander and Rufus, probably later disciples, that uh, Mark wanted you to know the family connection there. They take him to Golgotha, the place of the skull. They offer him wine mixed with myrrh. Of course, Jesus is not drinking wine until he enters the kingdom of heaven, but myrrh is a traditional embalming spice. Um, So that is appropriate for what's facing him. He has this um, inscription over him, the king of the Jews. Unlike in Luke, neither of the robbers on either side of him take Jesus' side. They mock him too. All those who pass by say, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. And also the chief priests and scribes mock him and say, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And it's very striking there. They put it in this language of confession, as if they really wanted to believe in Jesus. But in fact, they are so committed to what um, Jesus in chapter 8 would rebuke as not the divine way of thinking, but this worldly way of thinking, that if you can save others, surely you can save yourself. And if you want us to believe, surely you will perform the miracle of saving yourself. But that is exactly what Jesus refuses to do.
1: Yes, exactly. And notice even the formulation, in order that we see and believe. Well, if you must see in order to believe, what you're believing is the evidence of your own senses. You're not believing the Word of God or the promise of Jesus, which is something other than believing the evidence of your own senses.
0: Right. So finally, though, we are not to infer that because he is doing the right thing, Jesus is in a cheerful mood as he hangs dying on the cross. In fact, there is darkness over the whole land, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cries, or better, screams with a loud voice, and the words of the Aramaic are preserved, Eloi, Eloi, Lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not in any way the heroic ending we were looking for, and in fact, Luke and John dislike it so much they delete it, though Matthew preserves it but this is the very startling (laughs) ending for this guy who believed all along that he was doing God's will and enacting his presence and leading the battle into his kingdom and in fact at the last he cries you have forsaken me why what has what has gone wrong here and at that moment Jesus utters a loud cry breathes his last and then we have a very startling little detail here it's easy to pass over The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So this refers to within the temple, the part that screens off the Ark of the Covenant, where the original tablets of the Ten Commandments are supposed to be. It's the Holy of Holies that only the high priest can go on the holiest day of the year, the Day of Atonement. But there is nothing there. There has never been anything there for centuries now because the Ark has long since vanished. So there is, in a sense, this kind of void at the center of the temple, which at the moment of Jesus' death is exposed, that God who is supposed to be dwelling there is in fact not there. And for Mark's narrative, the terrible irony is that at the exact moment... That actually God, present with Israel, is murdered and dies is when they discover this emptiness at the heart of the temple after all. So a very startling juxtaposition there.
1: You could also add to that the thought that the Holy of Holies, the curtain, separated the uh, inner sanctum of reserved for God's presence into which the high priest could only enter once a year separated uh, God from uh, the hoi polloi, the masses, even the Jewish masses who were kept outside of it. So the severing of the temple could also indicate the at-one-ment of God uh, God and humanity. Right.
0: Very good. Very good. And then we have, uh, at the end, one last irony, because they're coming fast and thick now, when we have the centurion, in effect, the executioner who put Jesus on the cross, he is the one who looks and sees how Jesus breathes his last and says, Truly, this man was the Son of God. So the least likely person in the whole story gets it, the one who actually affected the murderer, the outsider, Gentile, Roman overlord, he's the one who gets who Jesus is.
1: And nothing makes clearer the narrative theology of the Gospel of Mark. This is, of course, psychologically uh, implausible that the centurion came to faith like that. Quite the contrary. Mark's point is here, if you don't grasp with the executioner who Jesus really is at the moment of his God-forsaken death, if you don't grasp that this is the beloved son who dies a God-forsaken death in this way, giving his life as the bond payment for the redemption of enslaved humanity. If you don't get that here, you're never going to get it, and no resurrection appearances are going to help you get it. This is this is the apocalypse, the cosmic moment in the Gospel of Mark.
0: So this is the climax of the action, and what follows now is what we call denouement, where we kind of follow up the loose ends and kind of come down off of the crisis moment, which is... is not just jesus death but the centurion's recognition of who he is in the moment of his death so we hear about the women we haven't heard a lot about the women so far in mark's gospel but they are named by name mary magdalene mary the mother of james the younger and Josie's, and salome they had been ministering him and there were also many other women we are told who came up with him to jerusalem wish we'd known more about them Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, so again, part of the Jewish establishment, who was looking for the kingdom of God, we're told, took courage and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate is a bit startled that Jesus is already dead, though considering that he'd already been thoroughly scourged before he was crucified shouldn't be too surprising. But he grants the corpse to Joseph. Joseph puts it in the tomb and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary see where Jesus was laid. And then finally, chapter 16, probably, as far as we can tell, it's only the first eight verses in your Bible that are authentic to Mark's Gospel. The rest of them were added later, probably because people were not happy with the abrupt ending and the lack of resurrection appearances. But when the Sabbath is passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bring spices so they can anoint him. He had to be buried very fast before the Sabbath fell, so he didn't get the proper embalming. They go to the tomb wondering, of course, how on earth they're going to get in, and then they see that the stone has been rolled back despite being very large. They go inside the tomb and they see a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe and they were alarmed. It seems very clear that this is not Jesus himself. It also doesn't seem to be an angel. Maybe it was the naked young man who got clothed again when went to the tomb ahead of them. Whoever he is, the identity of this guy does not seem to be remotely important to Mark. What's important is his message. He says, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Very important there to link the identity of Jesus to his crucifixion. Now we learn a new tale. He has risen. Better, I think, in the Greek, is he has been raised, that divine passive. He has been raised he is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, Peter, the total failure has been named by name that Jesus is waiting for him. Tell them that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So this is uh, good news for Peter that we don't actually see him get it. But then we have this utterly bizarre final statement. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And in the Greek, it's that word for, and for they were afraid. That's the very last word. It is a strange way to end a sentence, much less an entire story. And of course, it can't possibly be the end of the story, because otherwise... Why would this story be told at all? Why would there be a Christian community? Why would we even know in whatever way that these women had done this? There is something deliberately open-ended and suggestive about this conclusion.
1: As if to say to the one who's listened to this whole long narrative, well, what about it? How does the story continue? How does the story end? It kind of puts that right in the lap of the reader, doesn't it?
0: I think that's exactly what it's supposed to do. When I was a kid, there was this really popular series called Choose Your Own Adventure, and you would like read a section and then would say, if you do this, turn to page 51. If you do that, turn to page 72 or whatever. And you could read lots of different stories depending on the the choice you make. And it always reminds me of this here, that somehow the reason the story doesn't end is because now it devolves back to you, the reader, or the listener or the baptized or the not yet baptized or whatever to say, well, is this going to be the end? Is this fear-trembling silence or is something else happening
1: here? I think you could add one more thought here, that the identification of Galilee as the place where Jesus will uh, reconnect with his disciples is symbolically significant. Uh, in fact, Most of the other resurrection accounts have the appearances occurring around uh, Jerusalem. Uh, But here it's as if to say, Jesus is risen in order to continue all that he began to do in the region of Galilee. John the Baptist summoned people out into the wilderness but Jesus, having struggled with Satan in the wilderness, came into Galilee, bringing nearer the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, the risen Jesus continues in the work uh, that he had begun in Galilee, figuratively speaking, in the workaday world which is still under the dominion of the anti-divine powers.
0: So not such an unhappy ending after all.
1: Rather empowering, actually, if you're willing to engage in battle.
0: Right. <laughs> well, and it does imply that, in fact, the living church is the extension of this story. There's not an absolute break in the eras or something between Jesus' time and our time. But in fact, we are still living in Jesus' time because this is the church is this ongoing story unfolding. All right. Well, that's a good place to end. Uh, next time, we will take up the topic of triple predestination. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.